authority in this life am I under? If you're like most people, you spend a lot of your life wrestling through this question. Uh, You may not even realize it. You may not even recognize that there is an authority struggle and power. But I can promise you this. Anybody in the room that has preschool-age kids or if you have preschool-age grandkids, you know that the struggle is real when it comes to who will win the battle of authority, right? What makes this really challenging when we talk about whose authority our life is under is we often want to cling to whatever authority we feel like we have. Because when we look into the world, we see people who use authority in evil ways. We see corrupt authority. And if we're not careful, what we can do is we can take that vision of authority that we see that is broken in this world, and we can project that onto God, and we can say, well, God's authority must be like that. Because to see broken people hurt people with their authority, and so if God is God, then that, just, that must mean that he'll do the same. And so maybe we, we cower or we, we wrestle through that idea and we say, hey, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with that. What's interesting about the idea of authority and humanity is that when humanity was created, back to the garden story, back to the creation story, if we go all the way back to the beginning, when when God created man and woman, he gave them incredible authority over the earth. Listen to this. Genesis 1, starting in verse 28, then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He gave authority. He gave dominion, which is not a word we talk about a lot, but I mean, it's in the Bible. You know, he he gave that to humanity. And then, one page turn later, what do we see? Brokenness, sin, the fall. And that authority that that God freely gave humanity became corrupt at the fall. And that corruption has played out and played out and played out and played out and played out in this world. All the way up into this moment right now. My hope is today is that the authority that we're going to see as we look at Mark chapter 1 today, my hope is that the authority that we'll see in this passage of Scripture will be authority that will draw us to and that we will be willing to surrender and yield our lives under this authority because Jesus uses his authority for good. I mean, you could say that in the message, say a nice prayer, and send everybody home, but my timer says I've got 21 more minutes, so I'm going to take it. Jesus uses his authority for good. Jesus uses his authority to set things right, to make things right, and to make things new. And I hope today that we would see this and we would be so captivated by it, we'd be so drawn to it that we would say, yes, I'll surrender my life to that authority. I will surrender my will to that authority. I'll surrender whatever earthly authority I have to that authority because that is the kind of authority I want to place my life under. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you the three 
places we're going to go today. You can write these down and then tune me out the rest of the time if that's your thing, but you've got your note sheet filled, so you went home today feeling like you accomplished something, okay? So here it is. Jesus has authority over culture and customs. Jesus has authority over the presence of evil. And Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. Jesus has authority over culture and customs, the presence of evil, and sickness and disease. So in Mark chapter 1, what we've seen so far is Jesus shows up on the scene. There's John the Baptist, and he announces, uh, make, prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus is baptized. He goes out into the wilderness to be tempted uh, so that he can identify with our temptations, and he can identify with that for us so that as he becomes the suffering servant, he has been there, done that. We see Jesus show up and says, the kingdom of God is near. It's the idea that the the kingdom of God is as near as our hand is. It's right there. And then Jesus begins to assemble this, you know, D-minus list team of ragtag folks to become his followers. And after he calls these first couple of folks to come follow him, he shows up into a little town on the Sabbath. And that's where we pick up the story in Mark chapter uh, 1, verse 21. It says this, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. Now, again, it's important to understand, uh, Jesus didn't barge his way in. Jesus didn't show up and say, Hey, I'm Jesus. I get to preach today. No, this was the idea of this. Um, uh, the, there was a, a, an old uh, uh, thought from the first century. It was the freedom of the synagogue. And so there was typically a a leader over that synagogue, but if a teacher was in, they would just invite the teacher to come to share the scripture that day. And so that's all that Jesus is doing. It's, It's a custom in that day that Jesus is walking into. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one, and here's our word, having authority, not as the scribes. So you say, okay, well, what's, what's going on here? Why, why, why would this be the response from the people? Well, again, typically what would happen is a, a teacher would come up, and we've all sat through those boring sermons, have we not, where somebody just gets up, and they just look at their thing, and they read it, and then they dismiss everybody, and you go home, and it was just another Sunday. Typically what would happen is a, a teacher would, would quote previous writings about the scripture, and they would read the scripture, and that would be about it. But Jesus showed up as the very word of God, John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was not quoting. He was speaking and living out the word of God. This was something entirely different. Jesus taught with authority because he had authority. He was the authority, and he shows up in this synagogue. Things are different. People look at this and go, wow. I'm going to go back to church next week if that's the way church is. I'm going to go back next week. I'm going to show up early. I won't, I won't walk in halfway through the second song and, and, and sort of slip in and try to get somewhere convenient where nobody knows that I got here a little late. I'm not picking on anybody here today. Wouldn't do that. I'm going to show up early. I'm going to be there because this was different. You imagine the scene and that surprise. You go home that afternoon and you sit down with somebody and you say, your neighbor, your, your spouse, whatever, who, who decided not to come to church, and you say, man, this was different today. God was there. 
And they're like, oh, that's nice. And you're like, no, 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 no. Literally, God was there. And Jesus shows up. And not in a not in an overbearing way, but he shows up and he takes over because he has authority. And the people, the crowds recognize this is different. This word authority, it literally translates out as the power to act. And it shows up 93 times in the New Testament. And most of the time, the word that we'll see is the English translation is often translated uh, in these, one of these ways. It is authority, liberty, right, or power. This is the word that gets used when, when these people say he teaches with authority. It's he's teaching with liberty. He's teaching with right. He's teaching with power. This is different. This is something special. This is something unique. And Jesus shows up, and he has authority over the culture and the customs. He shows up, and he says, hey, this is going to be unique. This is going to be different because of who I am. I have authority in this place. He has authority, and that authority, the people in that synagogue 2,000 years ago recognized. And in that Sabbath day, in that synagogue in Capernaum, it was all about him in that moment. And it should be all about him 2,000 years later in this place. Let's just be, can we, can we talk fam to fam? One of the areas that we all get pretty prickly about when it comes to being prickly about things is what happens in church. It just got real quiet all of a sudden. Everybody's moving their toes back underneath because nobody wants to get their toes stepped on this morning. We all, with best intentions, walk into this place and have our ideal song length. They shouldn't sing that song that many times. Oh, if they would have just reprised it once more. We all walk in and think, man, the, the temperature of the room should be you know, this or that or the other. The, the light should be this or that or the other. The, the, the message length should be this or that or, or should, t- should have taken. I mean, we all, every one of us with best intentions, young and old, come in here with those preferences. But my hope is that on December 15th, 2019, in this place, and every other Sunday moving forward, that every one of us, myself included, would set those preferences off of center stage in our life, and we would put Jesus center stage. And we would say, these other things, they don't, they don't, they don't take center stage. Well, they may be right in some cases. They may be the best in some cases. But Jesus is greater, and Jesus has authority. And Jesus should be the one that has authority in and through and over this church. Jesus shows up in this synagogue, and my prayer is the same would happen today, that Jesus shows up and things are just different. We would all leave and we would say, wow, not that was a great song, not that that was a great message, not that, man, the temperature was just right today, not that, you know, man, the cookies were especially wonderful today, none, none of those things. 
we would leave and we would be just as they were, astonished at Jesus. What if we left each week and that's what was on our lips? The amazement, the astonishment at who Jesus is and what he has done. So Jesus has authority over culture and customs, but Jesus has authority over the presence of evil. And here's what I want to say. I want to, I want to make this statement before we read this next passage of Scripture. They already were astonished and amazed at Jesus before the miracle happened. Jesus showing up, rolling out the scroll, preaching whatever he did that day, they were already amazed and astonished before we see happen what happens next. But what happens next is amazing and astonishing. Check this out. Verse 23, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, and it's worth just stopping right there. Because the folks sitting in the pews in the synagogue that day were amazed at Jesus, but they didn't know who Jesus was yet. They were astonished at the teaching of Jesus, and maybe part of the astonishment was they didn't know who this guy was. But can we just stop and look at the text and let the text jump off the page at us for just a moment and go, wow. That the demon, the presence of evil in this person, knew who Jesus was before the people in the synagogue did. He said this. He said, did you come to destroy us? He recognized not only his authority, but the power that Jesus had. And then he says this, I know who you are. And what did he say to him? Not teacher with authority. Not, not, not teacher that had a good three-point sermon that buttoned up in 28 minutes. No, no, no. He said this. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The, evil, the presence of evil, the evil spirit in this man recognized who Jesus was long before the crowds did. Long before the people sitting in the pew. C.S. Lewis says this about evil in the world. He says, Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war, but it does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion. And that we are living part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king, the king that showed up in this synagogue in Capernaum on this day 2,000 years ago, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You may say, landed in disguise. Clearly, Lewis is thinking about the birth of Jesus. And is calling us all to be a part in a great campaign of sabotage. Now, if you are a William Wallace fan, that last line should make you go, yes. And Jesus, in this moment, he shows up. 
And before anybody in the congregation said, oh, that's Jesus, that's the Messiah, that's the one we've longed for, that's the one that our ancestors have said, God's been silent for 400 years, we've been longing, we've been waiting, this is him. The evil spirit in this man says, you are the Holy One of God. And I love what Jesus did. No magic, no hocus pocus, no ritual, no set the mood and the environment right. we got to get everything just right for this moment. What does Jesus say? Verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet. Now, he didn't have to tell the demon to be quiet in order to say, come out of him. He said to be quiet because he wasn't ready to reveal who he was yet. He says, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? Can we just not read scripture like it's black and red words on a white piece of paper, but read it like a drama? I mean, could you imagine if right now, I mean, I'll just pick on Eric. You know, Eric's right here, and all of a sudden, and I love Eric, and he loves Jesus. He's one of our elders, so I don't ever think this would happen. But there's, a, there's an evil, you know, spirit, and, and Eric starts convulsing, and, and, and all of a sudden, that, that spirit gets cast out of him. You wouldn't leave and go, well, church was nice today. Where are we going to go? We're going to Piccadilly. Piccadilly sounds good. Let's go to London. No, you'd go like, Whoa! What happened today? Something was different. And the difference was the fact that Jesus was there. The difference was the fact that Jesus had his authority on display for the people that day. In this moment, this is the the classic drama of good versus evil. And what we're going to see through the book of Mark, we're six weeks in, we're in the middle of chapter one. At this rate, it's probably going to take us about 16 years to get through you know, the book of Mark, but just bear with me. We'll all be old and gray by then. Um, in this moment, and time and time again, in this, in this gospel of Mark, in this drama of the story of Jesus, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the battle between good and evil continue to build and crescendo into the great drama, which is the cross. And on the cross is where Jesus will once and for all put evil and evil authority and the presence of evil under his feet. And, and this is a, is a glimpse at that. This is a glimpse at that authority that Jesus has, has over the presence of evil in our lives and in our wor world. You know, we talked a few weeks ago when we were talking about the kingdom of God, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is near, it's as close as your hand. We talked about that. We said that, that there is two aspects to the kingdom of God. There's both a now. There are realities that we live in today. Benefits, privileges, um, whatever it may be that we live in because the kingdom of God is both now and later. And part of that kingdom is here now. And there is part of it that is reserved for later. We looked at that text in Revelation that said one day there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more tears. 
Because this great drama between good and evil will move and crescendo all the way up until one day when Jesus does return and he does put all things under his feet. And this is a glimpse of that drama. That Jesus has not only culture and customs under his authority, he has not only the presence of evil under his authority, but the last one is this. Is that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. We're not going to spend a great deal of time on this text next week because ne- uh, this week because what we're going to do next week is we're going to take these next few verses and we're going to uh, connect them into the next few verses that we see happen with Jesus in his ministry. And, and it would be interesting, next week what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the compassion of Jesus. And so back-to-back weeks, we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus, which are usually not two things that go together. But because it's Jesus, they do. And it fits perfect with one another. But today, I want to try to give you a little bit of hope in in this text that we see that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. Verse 29 says this. Now, as soon as they'd come out of the synagogue, again, everybody's wowed. I mean, they're talking. This is amazing. They returned to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick. It's her mother-in-law, his mother-in-law lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. And you read that, and you just think, why didn't she take some Tylenol? I mean, this is a fever. Really? we got to put that? I mean, Mark, really? There's a lot of other stuff that Jesus did. I mean, John even said that if we recorded all the things that Jesus did, the world couldn't hold all the volumes of the books. I mean, and you put in there that he healed somebody from a fever? But we got to remember, first century, Israel, something that is routine for us, where someone gets a fever, you take a couple of Tylenol and you wake up the next day feeling better, could kill you. This is hospice going on in the other room. This is urgent. My my mother-in-law is sick and she could potentially die because she's got a fever. And Jesus, I love this. He just walks in, extends his hand, Maybe feeble and weak, she lifts hers up. And the creator and the sustainer of the world, who has presence, uh, has authority over customs and culture, and just cast an evil spirit out of a man, reaches down and touches this feeble woman who has a fever and lifts her up, and it's gone. It's gone. Jesus simply enters the room, shows compassion on this woman, and heals her. Now, this is challenging to say that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. When there are some of you that are here today that says that if Jesus, if you were honest and not being churchy and not putting your church mask on right now, You say, if Jesus has authority over sickness and disease, why is there an empty chair at my table this year?
And here's the hope that I want to give you today. There are three ways that Jesus heals. And we're going to see this over and over and over again. And we've experienced it over and over and over again. The primary method in which Jesus healed, as we see in Scripture, is supernaturally. And we all long for that, don't we? We're sick. We have a loved one that's sick. We have a, someone who's got a, a, a disease that's robbing their body. We just we pray to that, and God heal them supernaturally. And many of us have seen God do that in and through people's lives. But the other way that Jesus heals is Jesus heals medically. He, he heals through medicine. I have a friend of mine in the room right now who is a walking miracle because Jesus healed his body through modern medicine. And you may be here and you're saying, yeah, 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 you, I got that, dude. But, but, but if Jesus has authority over sickness and disease, that doesn't answer the question about why I've got an empty chair at my table this year. Why my heart is breaking. What's up with that? And here's what I want to say to you. Jesus heals supernaturally. Jesus heals through medicine. And Jesus heals through eternity. And there are some of us who have lost loved ones. There are some of us who are carrying broken bodies right now that we have begged God to heal, and he has not done it yet because he is reserving your healing for eternity. And you say, that's not fair. And I want to say to you this morning, it isn't. It is glorious. Because what is the alternative? That if God only chose to heal supernaturally and he only chose to heal medically, but there was no eternity that awaited where we see in Revelation, that text that we looked at, that the kingdom of God for later means that there's no more sorrow, there's no more tears, that what everything that has been broken and is broken will be made right. What is the alternative if God doesn't heal that way? Is that we die and our bodies decay? And that's it? No, for those of us who are in Christ, who have surrendered our lives to the authority of Jesus, even though we may lose loved ones now, we may carry brokenness in our lives and in our bodies, we have the hope that healing will come in eternity one day. Why? Because Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. And all the things that plague us today, and all the things that our heart longs for today, and all the people that we miss today, that when we are, are in Christ, one of the promises and the hope that we have for the future is that Jesus will heal all of us in eternity. So what does this mean tomorrow? You know, I've done my best to make this as clear and concise in about 27 minutes. I'm two minutes and 22 seconds over my time right now. I've done my best to, to unpack this as faithfully as I can, and, and all of that's fine. But, but if this doesn't change anything for you, what does it matter? So what does this mean for you tomorrow, Monday, when life happens, when the real world comes at you tomorrow? Here's what I hope it means for you. Colossians 1, 
15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And I love this. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, in, that in him he may have the preeminence. So back to the question. Whose authority are you living your life under? Are, are, you, are you still at war trying to figure this out on your own and live life under the authority of your 401k, of your retirement package, of, of, your, of your routine day-to-day grind that you live in? Or are you still trying to live under the authority of your corporate ladder? Are you still trying to live under the authority of you know, being the perfect mom that holds all of this together and I've got the perfect Instagram profile and everything's good and inside I'm dying because I'm trying to keep it all together? Are you living your life under the authority of one pursuing one pleasure or one hobby right after another? Or have you had a moment, even if you've been a follower of Jesus, we can drift from that authority? Have you had a moment where you've said, no, 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 no. I am going to surrender my life under the authority of Jesus. And here's what is amazing about every single passage in the book of Mark that we will see Jesus use and exercise his authority is in every single case, in every example where we see the authority of Jesus on display, the authority of Jesus is never oppressive. Oh, the authority of Jesus may demand obedience, but obedience is not oppressive in the kingdom of God. Obedience is joy because of what God has done, because of what Jesus has done in and through our lives. The authority of Jesus is never oppressive. It is always freeing. It is always life-giving. It is always taking steps towards making things that are broken and making them right again. And I love this. Because there's no 12-step no 12 program for putting your life under the authority of Jesus. There's no two steps forward and three steps back today and two steps forward and three steps back tomorrow. Oh, you're going to try and you're going to fail. Make no mistake. The, the war that's inside of you with your flesh and what you want to do. I mean, Paul even said that. I mean, it is going to be there. But to take the step to put your life under his authority, to say, I want to live my life in view of who God is and what he's done and live my life expressing gratitude through obedience to Jesus. The step is simply surrender. To simply say, I've been doing this for myself on my own long enough. And I want to surrender. 
I want to surrender my life. I want to build my life on something different than what I've been building my life on. So that's what I want to encourage each of you to do today. Is to take the step of surrender. 